The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. Today, Part 8, Living Letters. Our text, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 5. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. The second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 3. God's call to church action. The section, the fellowship of ministration. If you prefer living letters. Paul has just expounded, you remember, what he calls the triumph of the ministry. The section that occupied our thoughts last week. In graphic language, he has pictured the ministers of the gospel following in the train of a conquering Lord. In this spirit of victory, he has affirmed with characteristic apostolic dogmatism that he has no part with those who corrupt the word of God. On the contrary, he stands only with those whose service is the cause of Christ and the preaching of eternal truth without any compromise. He is one who serves under the eyes of God and for the glory of God. The question immediately arises as to whether or not Paul's claims were an ideal boast or whether they were true and genuine. The verses immediately before us give us the unqualified answer, addressing the false teachers who needed letters of commendation to give them acceptance in the church at Corinth. Paul says, do we begin to commend ourselves or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. An astonishing statement to be sure. In simple words, Paul is saying here that while the false teachers had to bolster themselves with written testimonials, he had living letters to commend his ministry. Those letters were the lives and characters of men and women that he had personally led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Under his preaching, they had become alive. And as they walked around, there were living letters of a message that works, of a gospel that saves, of a power that keeps living letters. As we examine these living letters in the context of Paul's testimony, there are two thoughts which will entertain our consideration this morning. Two very important thoughts. First, what I'm going to call the composition of these letters, and secondly, the commendation of these letters. To the first, the composition of these letters. Ye are our epistle written in our hearts. Verse 2. As Professor Tasker remarks, we need not infer that Paul regarded all letters of introduction as wrong or unnecessary though they may be sometimes obtained for malicious purposes, as, for instance, when he himself obtained letters from Jerusalem in order to hail men and women to prison and to cause them to blaspheme. He was aware also that letters of commendation had been written for other apostles, such as Apollos, for instance. So he wasn't against letters of commendation as such. But he did not, however, entertain for a single moment the thought that the Corinthians were so forgetful of his ministry as to need further testimonials of his preaching. He says, if you want a testimony, if you want a letter of commendation, if you want a proof that my ministry is valid, 
Look at the church at Corinth. See men and women who've been absolutely reclaimed, redeemed from sin and darkness and selfishness and made the children of God. These are my letters of commendation. Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. The apostle would, in fact, have been superfluous in asking for any written testimonials. Why? For a truly comprehensive letter of testimony was written right across that church at Corinth, proving the genuineness of his missionary activity. Now, to compose these living letters, certain requirements were necessary. And I want you to follow here very closely. We're speaking, first of all, then, of the composition of these letters. What are these requirements? First of all, the writer. The writer. Notice in verse 3, the epistle of Christ. Behind the apostle was the Lord himself. All living letters are composed by Jesus Christ. No epistles are self-produced. They must have a writer. And these epistles are the expression of the thoughts and purposes of the writer. So Christians are the transcript of Christ. If you, my friend, if you, my friend, know anything of the saving grace of Jesus Christ in your life this morning, it's because Christ has written his signature across your life. If you know anything of the livingness of his resurrection power within your soul this morning, it's because he stamped you with his autograph. How wonderful to know that Christ is writing these letters every day. As men and women respond to the gospel in true repentance toward God and in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the process of writing begins. From that point onwards, the composition of the letter continues until the day when Christ is manifestly declared in character and conduct. The writer of the letter of your life is Jesus Christ. Behind that autograph, that signature, that stamp of Christianity in your life is Christ. So we see that the writer of living letters requires, first of all, the writer. Secondly, will you notice the penman? The penman, thus the epistle of Christ ministered by us. While our Lord Jesus Christ is the writer of all living letters, it is equally true that he employs penmen, scribes. In the church at Corinth, the penman was obviously the apostle Paul, for he says, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Observe carefully, will you, that he considered himself to be only the instrument through whom the Holy Spirit could flow as ink, could flow as ink. So while Christ is the author and Paul is the penman, the Spirit of God is the ink. What happened at Corinth, God is performing today. Through his blessed Son, letters are being written, and the instrument for such correspondence are men and women who are totally yielded to the Spirit of the living God. And young fellow, Young woman here, older person here, preachers, missionaries here, let me tell you, as your life is totally yielded to the living God, by his spirit he pours out life, just like ink. And wherever you go, you're writing letters, writing letters. The author, Jesus. The penman, you. The ink, the Holy Spirit. How's your writing? How did it fare over this Thanksgiving period? Amidst the festivities of these past few hours, did you leave your signature, your autograph, and it spelt Jesus? Why? Because he was writing through you with the ink of the Spirit of the living God. Tell me, are you a penman through whom the Spirit is flowing? Are you leaving a legible impression upon the lives you touch day by day? Are you in the business 
of correspondence for Christ. So there is the writer. Secondly, there is the penman in this composition of letters. Thirdly, there is the tablet. Verse 3, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables or tablets of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. In olden times, letters were usually written on tablets of stone. Later on, on papyrus with reed pen and black pigment used as ink. In contrast with this process, however, the apostle speaks of the epistle of Christ as written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the fleshly tables of the heart. And undoubtedly, Paul has in mind two passages from the Old Testament, the one in Ezekiel that speaks of the stony hearts being replaced by hearts of flesh, broken, prepared for God to imprint his autograph. Undoubtedly, he's thinking of that great passage in Jeremiah where the new covenant is foretold, where God is going to write in the inward parts of our being his very law. Needless to say, before these divine impressions can be made upon human hearts, there must be a work of preparation and regeneration. Many different substances have been employed in writing, but one feature is common to all. In their natural state, they're not fit to be used for writing. In their natural state, they're rough. In their natural state, they don't absorb properly. In their natural state, they're not smooth enough. They must undergo a process of preparation. Even the primitive material of stone must be polished before engraving can begin. The reeds and leaves and skins that were used by the materials of ancients needed preparation. So with modern paper, of which rags is the raw material, they have to be prepared. These are torn into small pieces, washed, and cast into a new form, even a new creation. A similar process must take place in the preparation of the material for the epistle of Christ. We might as well try to write upon the rubbish of which paper is made as to impress legible evidence of the truth of the gospel on the life and character of one who has not been prepared by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Just as that stone had to be polished before the scribe with his stylus wrote his letter, just as papyrus had to be prepared through many processes before it could take the quill of the writer, just as that piece of paper has to be prepared by going through the processes of being torn to shreds and then matted together, then rolled out and smoothed out and dried. So your heart, my friend, and my heart, and the hearts of those for whom we pray and to whom we witness have to be prepared for the great writer Jesus through the penman, by the ink of the Holy Spirit, begins to write the letter to become a living epistle. The writer, the penman, the tablet, the message, Verse 3, manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. The supreme purpose of any writer is to convey the message of the author. And in this respect, there can be no doubt as to why Christ writes letters. No doubt as to why he composes living letters. As Christian men and women, we've only one reason. And that is to manifestly declare the Lord Jesus by life and by lip. Writing to the church at Philippi, Paul says these tremendous words, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether 
by life or by death. Ah, says Paul, there's only one ambition. Only one ambition. Even though I'm at the end of my life, it's that this body of mine should be like a magnifying glass. Or to change the metaphor, this body of mine should be like a tablet. This body of mine should be like a piece of papyrus. This body of mine should be like a piece of paper on which Christ is written with big letters, magnified, whether it's by life or by death. Why? For me to live is Christ. His primary concern was that Christ should be expressed through his mortal body. He had already written a similar vein to the Corinthian church in his first epistle when he said, I determined to know nothing among you, nothing among you, save Christ and him crucified, him crucified. And writing to the Galatian church, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I've identified myself with that death at Calvary that my raw material might be just put away so that the tree, the real personality, the real Paul, might be cleansed, polished, and prepared that Christ might live in me by faith. I want to ask you, my friend, what message are you communicating? Do people see in large letters that you're a Christian not only by profession, but also by performance? Do you know that the supreme purpose of Christianity is just that? There is only one reason why you're left down hereafter encountering your Savior in a regenerating experience. Only one reason. Only one reason. He's left you down here in order that you might be a living letter, a living epistle, known and read of all men. Dr. Griffiths Thomas used to say, Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. The fact that we have created a false dichotomy between what we term Christianity and what we know of Christ is one of the scandals of the religious world today. Our message is Christ because our life is Christ. And that is how it should be. No one out in the East, no one here in the West, no one on the mission field, no one in the jungle of a great city like this, no one should put a difference between Christ and Christianity. No one should say, like many students are declaring on campuses today, we want Jesus, but we reject Christianity. Christ and Christianity are one, and the letter must match the writer. And these bodies of ours should be living epistles of the Christ within us. And the Christ within us and the Christianity we profess should be one and the same thing. No dichotomy. Why? Because Christianity is Christ. And the letters large upon our lives should tell people that this is Christ. This is God in action in the world today. This is God's call to action. Yes, the composition of the letters. A writer, a penman, a tablet, a message. One other thought in this composition of the letter, the reader, the readers, ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. We need to underscore that little word all in this verse. You underscore it right there as you sit with your open New Testament. Underscore the little word all. We tend to soft pedal this all, read of all men. As epistles, we should be known and read of all men. People today rarely read the handwriting of God in the creation around them. Even though the invisible things of God are made known by the things which are seen, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that God's handwriting is across the blazing sunset, in the beauty of the trees, in the song of the birds. God's handwriting is there, but rarely do people lift their heads from the busyness of a modern 
technological world to read the handwriting in creation. They seldom read the revelation of the truth in the Bible before them. How many men, how many men today in the busyness of their life ever take down the Bible from the shelf and dust it and open it and read it? It's almost an unknown book. There was a time even in my short span of life where people knew what you were talking about when you quoted from the prophets, from the Old Testament. But men and women don't read their Bibles today. They don't read creation. They don't read revelation. But they always read the gospel of Christ as seen in Christians who live around them. Are you known and read of all men? And if you are, what is the gospel according to you? I want to ask the question, what is the gospel according to you? If you were the only Christian in New York and I needed to know what a Christian was like and I read your life, would I read a true gospel? If you're the only Christian in your home, father and mother are not Christians. Brothers and sisters are not Christians. You are the only Christian. And they don't read God in creation. They don't read him in the Bible. They read Christ in you. What is the gospel according to you? Are you giving a real gospel, a true gospel, a sound gospel? Business executive here, doctor, lawyer, professional man, let me ask you, there are no Christians in your particular company, no Christians in your medical school, no Christians in your college it may be, or immediately around you, and you're the only one. Are you giving a true picture of Christ? What is the gospel according to you? Do they read with absolute clarity the message of Christ? In you, are you a living epistle? The composition of the letter, the writer, our blessed Savior Christ. The penman, men and women, yielded to the Holy Spirit so that the ink of God flows. The tablet, the fleshly tables of our hearts, prepared and made ready by the regenerative work of the Spirit. The message, just Christ. Christ in all his fullness, crucified, risen, ascended, coming again, Christ in all his fullness. Readers, all men. And I want to just underscore again, before we leave it, all men. All men. There is an illusion. There is an illusion which is being rumored throughout the church of Jesus Christ that our task is to be discriminate in our witnessing so that we witness only in certain places. We witness with certain soft peddling in one area and loud peddling in other areas. I want to tell you that that is not New Testament Christianity. That is not test New Testament Christianity. Our epistles are to be known and read up all then. I cannot where you are. I cannot where you are. Around that Thanksgiving festive table, everybody should have known, large and clear, that you were a clean-cut Christian. In your work, in your home, in your church, all men, all men should read it loud and clear. All men, known and read of all men. Very well then, if that is the composition of the letter, now let's look quickly at the commendation of the letter. The commendation of the letters. In verse 1, Paul speaks of letters of commendation. And as we've already remarked, quoting from Professor Tasker, Paul was not averse to letters as such. All he was telling the Corinthians was this, you don't need actual paper letters from me. Just look at the flesh and bone in your own church. Regenerate humanity. That's the evidence that my letter, my letter, written by Jesus Christ through me, the penman, by the ink of the living spirit, is genuine. My letter is genuine. So he believed in letters of commendation, and to such letters of commendation there are certain essential features that must characterize each letter. And on these I want to weigh as we conclude our message this morning. There are three in number. 
and I want you to take each one of them very seriously. Letters of commendation. Commendation letters. Now let me ask you a question as we start. Does your life commend the writing of Jesus Christ? There are three things that stamp a letter of commendation. Here is the first one, authenticity. Authenticity. Ye are our epistle. And Paul's not ashamed to say that. He's not ashamed to say that. He identifies himself with the writing of Jesus Christ. True, Christ is the author. I'm the penman. But I want you to know at Corinth that ye are our epistle. In fact, written in our own hearts. You're a reproduction of what my heart is. Paul wrote these words with quiet confidence because he knew his own experience was authentic. And therefore, what he communicated was likewise authentic. Is the letter of your life authentic, my friend? Are you uncertain of your salvation in Jesus Christ? Or can you say, as Paul declares in another place, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul, Paul was not uncertain when he gave his testimony. He could speak with absolute authentic authority. Authenticity is lacking, lacking in testimony today. Tell me, are you sure of your salvation? Can you employ these words of the Apostle Paul? Is that letter of yours characterized by authenticity? Or is your testimony fuzzy? Is it nebulous? Is it uncertain? Is it full of questionings? When the outside world look at you, do they see authenticity right across your life? Now I want to tell you something. Never in the history of the world have men and women Look to the church of Jesus Christ wistfully for the authentic word. There is so much disillusionment today. There's so much doubt even about the Christian faith because of those who purvey their doctrine of a dead God that I want to tell you wherever a man speaks with authority, I'm not talking about arrogant dogmatism, but with that living, radiant, natural authority of an assurance that stems from heaven itself. When men and women speak with quiet authority, one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. When a man talks like that, I'm telling you everybody wants to listen. I cannot, whether it's from a pulpit or whether it happens to be in that private testament. Authenticity. The commendation of letters we're talking about. Here is the first characteristic, authenticity. Here is the second. And my, I want you to follow me clearly here. And closely. Authenticity. Secondly, legibility. Legibility. Known and read of all men. A letter serves no purpose if it cannot be understood. Some professing Christians are about as difficult to make out as the autograph and signature of some writers. Indeed, I remember hearing of some students from Oxford University who received a letter from a certain speaker who was replying to an invitation to speak at their Christian union. And not a man, not a man, not a girl on that Christian union group could decipher either the letter or his signature. But since he was a doctor, they thought it was best to take it to a drugstore. They imagined that the pharmacist would probably decipher it. The pharmacist looked at it for a few moments. He said, oh, quite easy. Shook up a few bottles and gave a dose of eyewash. Now, I don't know if that's apocryphal. But whether it is or not, I'm telling you, some people just write like that. And my point is not whether or not that story was true, told me by one of the Oxford graduates, but to illustrate the blurred illegibility of certain lives and letters. In the Christian life, the fault never lies with the author of the letter. Let me make that clear. In the Christian life, the fault never lies with the, with the author of the letter. 
but rather with the material on which the letter is written. Jesus always writes clearly, but we offer him such poor material. Because of impurities in our lives, we blur the message and so confuse the readers. Is the writing of Christ legible in your life, my friend, or are you one of those persons who can be distinguished in any congregation by the blots and the blemishes that appear in everything you say and do? Look at a letter. The first thing that strikes you is not the address. Look at a letter. The first thing that strikes you is not the signature. Look at the letter. The thing, first, next thing that strikes you is not the capitalized words. The first thing that strikes you, my friend, in any letter is the blot and the blemish. And I repeat again, and I repeat with reference to my Savior and Christ, there is never any illegible writing from him. But oh, the material we present to him. Oh, the material that we provide for him. We just don't absorb what he writes. And I want to say, my friend, that legibility, legibility is one of the characteristics of commendation. Not only authenticity, but legibility. Thank God there is an eraser provided for those ugly marks in our lives. John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, that we might pray this morning, gracious Lord, gracious Lord, thy hand, thy handwriting is ever perfect. Thine autograph is always clear. But oh, this imperfect life of mine, this paper I provide, oh Lord, purify it, cleanse it, make it the right, the right consistency that thy signature, thy message, thine autograph may be legible. And men may read me clear. Authenticity, first characteristic. Legibility, second characteristic. But there is a third. And on this I want to dwell in these closing moments. Look at verse 3 again. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. Paul isn't piling up words here unnecessarily. Indeed, he's writing under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to underscore those two words, manifestly declared. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. Once again, a letter only serves its purpose when it is read convincingly. Convincingly. You see, it's not only authenticity that matters, not only legibility that matters, but credibility. Credibility. It is conceivable that a letter could be legible without being credible. I can read every word on that letter, but it's unconvincing. I can read every word on that letter, but it's not credible. And that which commends our letters, that which makes the people believe, is not just authenticity, important as that is, and it's fundamental. Not only just legibility, important as that is, but credibility. Credibility. Is that life of yours convincing? Is that life of yours convincing? To me, this points up one of the greatest weaknesses in the Church of Jesus Christ today. It's what we might term the credibility gap. The credibility gap. It is, it is the inconsistency between profession and performance. Between what we profess to be and what we actually are. The inconsistency, I repeat, between profession and performance, we claim to be Christians, but we're downright hypocrites. The credibility gap. The credibility gap. And I guarantee to say, if you were to go out with a survey, especially amongst thinking people throughout our city tomorrow, 
And you ask the question, why is it that you don't believe the message of the Christian church? Why is it you don't belong to a Christian church? Why is it you're not involved in Christian work? I guarantee to say 99.9% of most of the answers you would receive would be that of the credibility gap, the utter hypocrisy, the unreality, the insincerity, the great gap between profession and performance. Ah, it's one thing to have an authentic letter. It's another thing to have a legible letter. But it's another thing to have a credible letter. Credibility. Does that commend your letter, my friend? As William Barclay puts it, and I want you to follow me here in a very, very remarkable quote, every Christian, whether he likes it or not, is an advertisement for Christ and Christianity. The honor of the church, the honor of Christ, is in the hands of his followers. We judge a shopkeeper by the kind of goods he sells. We judge a craftsman by the kind of articles he produces. We judge a church by the kind of men it creates. And therefore men judge Christ by his followers. Then quoting a famous British preacher who loved to go out into the open air and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, Dick Shepherd, after years of talking in the open air to people who are outside the church, declared that he discovered that the greatest handicap the church has is the unsatisfactory lives of professing Christians. When we go into the world, we have the awe-inspiring responsibility of being open letters, advertisements for his living church. End of quote. Authenticity, legibility, credibility, the marks, the characteristics of living letters. I want to ask you, my friend, are those marks evident in your life? Here are the three characteristics to commend us to a world outside. Authenticity, legibility, credibility. To what extent are these features true of you? To what extent are these features true of me? Let us remember again that we're all living letters, known and read of all men. We owe the composition to the grace of God alone, but for the signature and autograph of Jesus Christ in blood when he hung upon a cross, you and I could never be a living letter. He writes his autograph upon our lives. He writes his message upon our lives by the living spirit with the ink of God. He uses penmen here, there, and everywhere, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and we become living letters. We owe everything to him in terms of composition. But, 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 the commendation of these letters is determined by us. The commendation of your letter is determined by you. The commendation of my letter is determined by me. Only when we, only when we decide that our letter is going to carry the mark of authenticity, legibility, credibility, will we commend ourselves to a world outside. There is no greater need in the church today than living letters of testimony to a God who's alive and who's active in the world. Let us see to it then that we are epistles known and read of all men. May I sum up my message by sharing with you these words. Life is an epistle writ in word and deed. It's the only gospel some will ever read. Christ transcribes the letter with the Spirit's pen on the human paper of us sinful men. Ere he writes, he chooses hearts prepared and true. Then he works and uses with his plan in view. 
Jesus now is waiting to dispatch his word. Let us then be willing to obey our Lord, living letters. What is the gospel according to you? Let us pray. Our Father, we bow in thy presence in these moments of stillness and contemplation to expose ourselves afresh to the impact of thy holy word. Thou hast spoken to us by thy spirit. Thou hast spoken to me. Thou hast spoken to every sensitive heart here in this sanctuary across the airway. We confess to thee that we've not carried the characteristics of living epistles, authenticity, legibility, credibility. Indeed, We've confused the outside world. They've not been able to read us distinctly. Oh, God, our Father, have mercy upon us. We thank thee for making us letters. We thank thee for the composition. But, oh, Father, grant us grace for the commendation. Oh, grant us grace that from this sanctuary this morning and from those who hear this message elsewhere, that we may go out living epistles, living epistles, known and read of all men, Oh, by the Spirit of the living God, do this work in our hearts. Stamp thine own image deep on our hearts. We ask it for thy blessed name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources, or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.